0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast where we prod the sheep and beat the wolf. This is episode 69, Seven Ways to Blaspheme the Word of God, Part 2. The Ideal Modern Woman In the spirit of speaking plainly last time that we were all together on this salty little podcast, I decided to tackle one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. And the reason that it's so controversial could not be any more obvious. The world that we live in hates women and the passage that we were looking at celebrates what a woman is and and the God who lovingly made her. This passage is both refreshing and satisfying to the Christian, especially to the Christian woman, who loves God's word and submits to his designs. It offers us a reason to give glory to the God who designed such a beautiful creature as woman and endowed her with such meaningful work. To a world that has entirely desecrated femininity, well, this passage looks a little bit different. It is perceived as patriarchal, restrictive, misogynistic, dangerous, and the adjectives could go on and on. But I want to talk a little bit about that danger part, because from where I sit, the biblical view of womanhood liberates women. It restrains the kind of vices that destroy women, and it frees women up to joyfully be who God originally designed them to be. That scriptural view is good, and it causes it's the cause of deep, satisfying joy to all the double X chromosome human beings who adopt the mantle thereof. Now, I say it that way because in the very recent past, common sense has been thrown entirely out the window. Today, any subpar, emasculated, pathetic loser can prance around in a tutu and call himself a woman. And sadly, every authentic woman on earth is going to be forced to celebrate that ugly monstrosity or be punished. Now, how about we keep going down this little rabbit trail since the world's view of women is so liberating, right? Well, the average high school girl will have multiple sexual partners before she graduates high school. None of them will commit to her. None of them will provide her security. None of them will covenant and love her for a lifetime. They will use her and they will lose her. And then most of those schools will help her obtain a secret abortion without her parents knowing about it. You know, in the name of female health and all. Then they'll teach her through a pornographic curriculum that she's just an animal with animal impulses so that she can behave like one. And then they'll provide her with ample drugs and alcohol, a hookup culture, and a $100,000 plus noose around her neck called university. Then they will teach her how to suppress her internal feminine desires for family and trade them in for a career in a corner office with a view. And by the time that our societal bastions of female love and generosity even emanate that she has permission to get married and become a mother, you know, around the age of 35 or 40 for an increasing number of women in this culture. Then she's already in the waning years of her fertility with a man who is just as broken as she is and the couple most likely ending up in in divorce, just like all the other statistics. So there you have it. If you follow the path that our woman hating society has etched out for you, you'll need to embrace a view that some women can get testicular cancer and you'll need to prioritize everything above covenant marriage and motherhood and your life, statistically speaking, will more likely than not end up as a disappointed Karen or an eccentric cat lady a couple of decades later. If that is a loving view of what womanhood is and the ultimate goals of what womanhood should be, then I do not want to know the brutality of the world's hate. A bit from the heart. Now, I know I can be a bit pungent. If this broadcast were a cheese variety, well, then it might smell somewhat like Limburger. I get that. This Pepe Le Pew sort of tactic that I'm employing, oddly enough, is by design. We live in very confused times right now. So confusing, in fact, that hand-holding and emotionally coddling will not work any longer. It just won't. We have liberally scooped heaping shovels full of sugary Christianity onto the culture and force-fed it right down their throat until the society that we live in has the equivalent of a diabetic coma. Instead of that... I want to write to be a little salty. I want to write to incite. As with salt, I write to cause high blood pressure in the docile and maybe a few heart attacks among those who are under moral heart failure. My aim is not to butter anyone up, to pet them on the head and to leave them with their fragile ego intact. That's not my point. If you want that kind of thing, listen to Joel Olstein, Dr. Phil, or any other of the professional ear ticklers that we have amassed these days. They're a legion. I'm writing to stir up thoughts and to provoke reaction. I'm writing so that hopefully we can get people thinking, wrestling with things, and developing the kind of backbone that's going to lead to godly men, godly women, godly families, godly churches, so that we can retake the world for Christ. That's my aim. But, tip of the hat to the 80s, if you would like a softer side of Sears, or Kendall in that matter, then here's my heart. I am tired of seeing women damaged by this godless society. I'm sick of it. It breaks my heart whenever I see one of God's daughters in agony over childlessness because the world has continually told her, get a career, get this, get that, delay marriage, delay children, delay, delay, delay until she can't have them anymore. That's cruelty, It angers me to watch men mistreating Christian women in the society and Christian women behaving like that they don't know any better or deserve any better. Ladies, you are God's daughter. You were made beautiful and royal and glorious. Please do not listen to the lies that Satan has stitched into our culture with a bloody machete. Return back to what the word says about you. Remember that if you're in Christ, you're forgiven for all your sin. There's therefore now no condemnation for you. That's the gospel. But also remember, as you embrace God's view of womanhood for your life, and as you help other women create a new culture of womanhood that celebrates what women truly are, then you are going to help provide your daughters and mine with the kind of environment that you never had. They're going to grow up without the same wounds and without the same scars. And they're going to be ready to eagerly build up their families to the glory of God without all of the shame and the guilt that our generation brought to the table and the generations before that and the generations before that. Some of the things that I could say in this blog may wound you. They may convict you. They may afflict you. They may make you feel like that you failed, that you don't measure up, and that what's the point of even trying but I want you to reject that notion outright. Christ defeated sin and death. He's healed you, he's washed you white as snow, and he's put his royal tiara on your beautiful head. That is glorious. And I want you to hold your head up high in that acknowledgement. But just because God has rescued our generation out of such great depths of sin does not mean that we should want our daughters to go swimming in those polluted pools as well. My goal is that this current generation would embrace biblical manhood and womanhood and marriage, even if it doesn't align with your current story so that future generations, I want us to embrace it now so that future generations will have what you and I did not have. So to that end, I want to dive back into Titus 2, 3 through 5 for part two of this blog. And I want us to look at what God says about womanhood. So here's the text. The older women, likewise, must be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. This is Titus 2, 3 through 5. Where we've been. As you remember last time, the Apostle Paul used the word blasphemy when it comes to denying God's view of womanhood. He was saying that if there was an older woman, and anyone else for that matter, and I'm talking from the average person all the way to the pastor here, I'm talking to anyone. If there's anyone who's teaching a view of femininity that is contrary to God's vision, then they have blasphemed God's word. A crime, which you will know from last week or last time, was punishable by death in the Old Testament. Yeah, God takes woman seriously, that seriously in his word. So instead of blaspheming God's word, we saw last time that Paul instructs older women how to come alongside of younger women in the community. And he calls on them to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and love their children. Instead of loving them in a purely sacrificial way, which is very common for women, Paul admonishes them how to love them in a different way, in a way that is more conducive to their husband's health and vitality. He encourages them to be uh, philandros or lovers of husband and and to love them in a joyful and friendly kind of way. Paul's goal is not for women to slave away in the kitchen and dutifully serve their families as embittered servants. That's not his point. On the contrary, he was calling women to be the lifeblood of the home, the vivacity of the home, the vigor of the home to fill the atmosphere and the aroma of her castle with abundant mirth and joy and laughter and infectious delight for all who know her. That is what he's calling her to is to be a lover, to be a, to be a joyful, loving, friendly voice in her husband's life. And then also to come alongside of their children and to do the same thing for them. Those were the two, the first two of seven essential concepts about womanhood. That Paul was teaching and again we looked at those last week in part one or last time this week in part two we're going to be looking at the final five concepts that the older women are to teach the younger women so that the word of God will not be blasphemed and supposing that you're still with us well then I just have one thing to say onward number three the third thing that Paul teaches us women are to be moderate In addition to husband-loving and child-loving, Paul calls younger married women with children in the community to adopt a moderate lifestyle. The word he uses for sensible in the New King James that we read before is sophron, which means to embrace a life of moderation by living somewhere in the middle. It means to be balanced. He is encouraging women not to find themselves on the poles of reality or to live in the extremes, but to find herself somewhere in the very balanced middle. Paul might say if life were like a seesaw, then stand on the pivot point. This contributes to a healthy womanhood. Now, before anyone can accuse Paul of being a world-class sexist, remember he has just accused or he's just commanded the men to be moderate as well, Titus 2.2. And when we remember that Paul also gives this character qualification to anyone who is aspiring to the office of eldership, 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8, We know that this is not only a good characteristic, but it's not just peculiar to women. It's an excellent quality to cultivate for any human being. Paul is not saying that men are somehow more moderate and more balanced than women. He's saying that we're all prone to excess. Both genders need work. For instance, men are disproportionately prone to the kinds of immoderation that lead to risk-taking, uh, aggressiveness, adventure and merrymaking, overworking, accumulating shotguns and rare bottles of whiskey on the gluttony side of a moderation. And then on the negative side or on the passive side of moderation, neglecting emotional health, communication, relationship building, physical health, and other things like that. Now while women can certainly be immoderate in the same ways as men, it's far more likely that women will struggle with moderation in spending, in emotional overexpression. In communication, in comparison, in dieting, and perfectionism on the high side of things, and then isolation, bitterness, and jealousy on the other side. These are generalizations, of course, but Paul's point in this passage in particular is for women to live moderate lives, to be content with what she has, to avoid excess, to avoid aestheticism, to live in the balanced middle, and by doing that, she will live richly and will conform to the patterns that God has for her. So if you're a woman listening to this podcast today, look at your life and say, where am I living in excess? And then eliminate that. You might be living in a shortage of something. Well, come back to the middle, come up to the middle. You may be living in an excess of something. Well, come down to the middle. And either way, live a moderate life. It will bless you and it will bless those around you. The fourth thing Paul teaches uh, about womanhood in this passage is that they are to be pure. Along with moderation, Paul encourages younger women to remain pure and chaste in their behavior and in their life. Like a young virgin who is keeping herself pure for her future marriage, 1 Corinthians eleven two, 2. And for the man who sets his mind on the pure truths of God, Philippians 4, 8. The godly woman is also to keep herself pure in mind, heart, body, and spirit in her marriage. She'll prioritize holy purity with her God. She'll weed out her sin, give no occasion for the flesh. She'll offer to her husband the continual gift of tender, loyal, and loving fidelity for a lifetime. And that, of course, will bless her and will bless her family. And if enough women will do that, it will reinvigorate womanhood. The fifth thing that we learn in this passage is that Paul is telling women that they need to be workers at home. Now, some of the strongest language in the Bible has to do with when, where, and how men and women are going to spend their time. For instance, the man must leave the home in order to gather resources. If he's lazily loitering around the house all day, twiddling his thumbs and refusing to go to work to provide for his family, well, Paul says that that man is worse than an unbeliever and that he has denied the faith, 1 Timothy 5.8. On the other hand, a wife is called to stay home. She's not called to to go out into the world and make a living for the family. She's called to stay home. The text is not unclear on that. It's very clear. Paul says that if a wife and a mother leaves her home in order to join the rat race of the corporate world, neglecting her house duties, her husband loving and all the needs of her children, then she has blasphemed the word of God. So just to recap, if you're a man and you don't provide for a family, you're worse than an unbeliever. If you're a woman who goes out and works and neglects your family, you've blasphemed the word of God. Those, that's equal opportunity in intensity from God about male and female roles, which is fascinating. Now, the reason Paul and the reason why God speaks this way is because men and women are not the same. We are equal in personhood, yet we're distinct in our role. As male and female, we have divinely appointed complementarity in the roles that God has given us. We don't play the same role, even though we're equal in person. Women were designed to stay home and care for the children and to bring life into the halls of their home. Men were called to leave the house in the morning, hunt, fish, till, toil in order to bring back resources to their wives who will multiply those resources to the glory of God and for the good of her home. So while Paul could not state this more clearly than he already did in our text, this has become one of the most hated portions of any scripture in the canon of the Bible. Any thoroughgoing, lime green haired feminist would object right at this point and say, what is this, the handmaiden's tale? What do you what do you mean that a woman can't leave the home? This is very clearly a form of sick and sadistic patriarchy fueled by toxic masculinity, as the lesbians say. This, along with some other mutterings that are too saucy for a Christian blog, I've not included, but that sort of should give you the point. To the militant feminist, feminist, however, I would say a wife and a mother must work in a home and build it up. But notice what I've not said. I did not say that this applies to all women in all seasons of life. There are women who still live at home with their mothers and fathers who can work outside of the home. Think about a 16 year old. There's also single women who are not yet married and who can work so that they can save up for marriage and family through a good paying job. No problem there. There are divorced women without children who are working to make ends meet and to pay for their way. Okay, fine by that. There are also older women whose children have left the nest and who you know, might want to pick up some hours here and there to keep herself busy and to help the family prepare for retirement. On and on. We could go through example after example. Paul is not saying that by nature of a woman having a uterus that she can't go out into the big, bright world and get a job. Far from it. What he's saying is that if you have young ones in the home, little ones that are relying upon your care, then you blaspheme the word of God if you choose a career over your children. You blaspheme the word of God if you outsource your maternal affection and the active participation in your baby's lives and you give that sacred duty to dirty swine who will pervert them in government schools, daycares and after school programs. There is no substitute for the Christian mother. There's just not. It is the most important job on earth. Now, with that, Paul says that a young married woman with, chil- with children, her first priority is to be at home with her young. She's to be there in order to discipline and to train them, to love them and feed them, to care for them and to help them grow up, to be the kind of citizens that will threaten the hounds of hell by their allegiance to Jesus Christ. You can't subsidize that. You can't stunt or you can stunt that by by leaving and neglecting that. And if you do, according to this passage, you blaspheme God's word because it is your greatest priority. Number six. Teach them to be good. This is Paul saying that women are to be good. Now, the New King James Version renders agathos as kind, which is, it's an okay rendering, but the word really just means good or useful. Now, Paul is not saying to teach the women to be good in the same way that you might implore little Johnny to be good when he's got a particularly bad habit of flushing his Paw Patrol characters down the toilet. That's not the kind of be good we're talking about. The kind of good here is not an appeal to behavior that a superior would say to an inferior, but it's the kind of appeal to goodness itself. He's saying, be the kind of woman that brings goodness and virtue and vitality and flourishing into your home. Use your feminine love to bless your home and blanket every square inch of it with blessing decorate it to the glory of God, throw feast in the honor of Jesus's name, cause children to know that they belong to Christ and are citizens of the high country of heaven, create memories saturated with love for a lifetime. That's what he's saying. Be the glue that holds everything snugly together. When Paul calls a woman to be good, he is telling her to be the main attraction in her home. He is telling her to be the good that everyone enjoys so much. He's telling her to hold it all together and when she does that, she will be blessed and everyone else will be blessed. That's why that's why Solomon says in Proverbs 31 that the children will rise up and call her blessed because she is the good of her home. Number 7. Be subject to their own husband. Lastly, Paul reminds women that God has set up a leadership structure within the home that he wants them to remember. He does not tell the woman to be subject to every man on earth, nor to obey all men, as if she, by nature of her womanhood, were somehow inferior to man. Far from that. Instead, what Paul is saying is that the man that she chose to be married to, the one whose character that she carefully combed over, is the one that she's going to submit to, recognizing that God has given her husband the responsibility and the duty to lead their home, which is actually really good news for the woman. First, if the man is responsible for the leadership of the home, then he is the one who will stand before the Lord on whether it rises or falls. This is not a burden that any woman will ever have to feel herself, at least not ultimately, because God in his grace has burdened the man with the position of leadership and responsibility and a holy burden it most certainly is. But as Paul says elsewhere, just because a woman is not responsible before God for the ebb and flow of her home does not mean that she has no responsibilities for the success of that home. As we see in Genesis 1 and 2, the woman was made to be the man's helper. Her, She's to help support him so that to ensure that he thrives in his leadership. And as she supports him, he's going to become blessed. And then as she is blessing him, she's going to become blessed. And then the whole family is going to be blessed By helping the husband thrive as a leader, she is blessing everything and everyone. That's first. Now, second, as mentioned before, every woman gets to choose whom she is going to marry. Since she's not going to be called to submit to every single man, she gets the opportunity to pick the right man. She gets to evaluate his character and determine if he's a passive pushover who's going to leave their family vulnerable to attack, or if he's a domineering dunderhead who's going to leave her tribe exasperated. She gets to look beyond appearances and washboard abs, and she gets to look into the heart and choose a man who is chasing after Christ. Perhaps this is why God, when he created male and female, did not cause both of them to be stimulated visually because the woman is going to need to look a little deeper than the superficial under the veneer of things kind of look in order to find the right man. Either way, the woman has an incredible responsibility for the future blessings of her home. She gets the right and the privilege of finding the kind of man who will love her like Jesus loves the church. And once she has found that man, she gets to help encourage and spur him on so that one and everything that her marriage touches is going to be blessed. Far from being a trophy wife who just collects dust, she is central and critical to the blessing and the vitality of her casa. Conclusion. As we've seen, God loves his vision of womanhood so much that he calls it a blasphemy to pervert it. And while the world around us would want to whittle womanhood down from a mighty redwood to a flimsy little toothpick, by clinging to the Lord's word in scripture, I believe that we can have a revival of femininity and a resurgence of Christian womanhood. In our passage today, we saw seven things that a woman must do and be taught to do so that God's word is not blasphemed, so that the whole world would teem with her blessings. Number one, she is to love her husband by, and be friendly towards him and to seek to bring holistic joy and pleasure into his life. Number two, she is to bring that kind of mirth and celebration into her home so that her children will feel well-loved, safe, and secure. Number three, she is to live a moderate lifestyle, avoiding the pitfalls of polarized living, and instead to live in the middle and to be balanced in all things. Number four, she is to remain a godly and radiant picture of purity in every aspect of her life. Number five, she is to be a diligent worker in her home, laboring to take the blessings that her husband provides her and then multiply them for the good of her family and for the glory of God. Six, she is to be the good part of her home so that everyone is blessed by her goodness and benefits from her goodness. Number seven, she is to do all of these six things in a home where she is subject to her own husband as the church is subject to the Lord. And while this is not an exhaustive view of womanhood, it does offer seven incredible examples of how a woman will be blessed. When she does these seven things, she will be blessed. And so will everyone else around her. And may we as Christians see these truths in the scripture and may they cause us to joyfully obey and worship God. And may they cause our hearts to be thankful that God created such a beautiful creature as woman. May this passage cause the cleverly designed attacks on femininity in this culture to cease and may this passage spark a revival of biblical womanhood that'll break out so that women again can thrive in this country. That is my prayer. That is my hope. And until next time, see you again on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. It is our joy to bring content to you as often as we can. Thank you so much for all that you do. If you will, like the show, share the broadcast, subscribe to it, click the little bell notification so that you can get uh, updates whenever new episodes come out. And until next time, I hope you're thoroughly blessed. Hope you embrace who you are in Christ. And we'll see you next time on the podcast. God bless.